0: Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you're listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at Schwepp.net, episode 172. And when Rome falls, falls the world. The fall of Rome and Western esotericism. If you're like me, gentle listener, the product of Western culture, you probably have two very interesting competing macro narratives running all the time in the background of your thinking. One narrative, often called Whig History, is a myth of progress. Human culture, or the human cultures that matter, namely Western culture, is progressing in all kinds of ways, and things are getting, well, better, and will surely continue to do so. We've been brought up to assume this. I grew up in north america this was a a very valent background assumption to everyone's thinking materially scientific invention will always come up with new marvels to save us from the old batch of problems it created this is a a faith-based argument that you find in all kinds of uh, forums economically everyone will gradually get wealthier and wealthier as capitalism keeps on generating all that human flourishing which it creates sort of just by its nature. People are going to get nicer and more civilized all around the world. And we can even talk about maybe completely eliminating whole societal ills. A world without slavery, a world without racism, without murder, without war. These are things many people, in a vaguely defined way, think or assume might conceivably happen, or might at least happen in the West. When the First World War ended, and Europeans spoke in optimistic tones of an end to war for all time, well, they meant it, even if it seems a little bit naive in retrospect. And even if they really meant no more war between white people, which is what they meant. Now, this is the kind of thinking which gets people really riled up when they see, as for example, everyone in Europe and the West European diaspora nations is seeing right now, uh, their economic prospects actually looking a bit worse than their parents or grandparents. Or when white people do make war on other white people. This isn't supposed to happen, according to this narrative. Cue the second narrative, which says that every civilization, no matter how great, how advanced, how divinely ordained, must eventually fall, or even must eventually collapse, And we'll get to the difference between a fall and a collapse shortly. We all also know, it seems to me, on some instinctive level, that this must be the case. In this episode, we're going to be discussing a major reason why we think we know this. Or this is my analysis anyway. It's because it already happened. Because in the early 5th century, the eternal city, Rome, was sacked And in the ensuing centuries, the Roman Western Empire collapsed. Way back in episode 59, we introduced Rome. Not the city per se, but the cluster of powerful tropes and cultural ideas and memory clustered around the city. The idea of Rome, the cultural memory of Rome. In antiquity and in later esoteric currents of thought, we introduced the notion of Rome as the eternal city, powerfully formulated by Virgil in his epic poem, The Aeneid. We talked about some of the history whereby what was a pretty obscure Italian city-state gradually, and in some ways accidentally, grew to control the entire Mediterranean region. The Romans called the Mediterranean Sea Mare Nostrum, our sea, and with perfect justice. And along the way, how Rome evolved from the hybrid governmental form known as res publica into something new. Imperium. In more recent episodes, notably episode 95, the third century and the long late antiquity, we discussed the evolution of the Roman Imperium from the period known as the Principate, an imperial system preserving some aspects of the older republican government of Rome, into the Dominate, the military dictatorship of the later Roman Empire with its imperial Fureur principe and all-consuming military mobilization. And we've discussed the gradual Christianization of the empire, at first organically, and then by Constantine with his crucial political moves from above in the early fourth century. And finally, notably, as the fourth century progressed, as a widespread social movement. People were becoming Christians in droves in the fourth century. Traditional religionists were increasingly coming under various forms of pressure, either from above. Um, intolerant emperors or regional governors, or from their neighbors, because rabid mobs of temple stripping Christians really were a thing in the fourth century. All of this brings us up to the present episode, where I wanted to say a few things about the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, how it happened, how it didn't happen, in ways that people sometimes think it did, but most importantly, what it means for Western culture and Western esotericism. So first of all, how it happened and how it didn't happen. We get the phrase decline and fall of the Roman Empire, of course, from the great work of Edward Gibbon, by more or less that name, published in six volumes from 1776 to 1789. Interestingly, for those interested in uh, numerical correspondences, 1776 is, of course, the year of the American Revolution, one of many attempts throughout Western history to reinstate the imperium of the Romans along esoteric lines. But that is a discussion for a future episode. Now, Gibbon's magnum opus is a fantastic read, and itself a major work of world literature, so I highly recommend checking it out. And there are abridged versions, if, like me, you don't have time for all six volumes. But there might be some misconceptions about the subject matter of Gibbon's work, among those who haven't read him. It hardly overlaps with the curriculum known as Classics which concentrates on the so-called classical period, a made-up historical era stretching from the beginnings of Iron Age Greece to the beginnings of late antiquity, whenever precisely we date that from. That's what your classicists tend to cover. Classicists, in other words, usually don't know anything about late antiquity. The major ancient Greek dictionary, little in Scots Greek-English lexicon, completely ignores Christian writers as though there is no classical Christianity. This is the territory. So Gibbon is dealing with a period more or less beginning with the empire. So ignoring most of what is called classical history, um, the, the empire being the imperium founded by Augustus in the first century. And his work extends all the way to the fall of Constantinople, the new Rome, in the year 1453 to the Ottomans. Gibbon is right. That's the history of Rome at a minimum. However, in the year 410 CE, the city of Rome, the old Rome in Italy, where everyone spoke Latin, in the year 410, the unthinkable happened, and Rome, as it were, fell. So here's how it happened in a nutshell. This is the basics of history before we move on. In the fourth century, and this is the background to a lot of the history of Julian that we've been talking about and uh, just fourth century Roman history more general, lots of tribes across the Danube frontier were on the move in a big way. If we think of large bands of Germanic peoples traveling with wagons looking for a place to settle down, that's kind of the deal, but also looking to grab plunder where and when they can. Why are they on the move? That goes beyond the scope of this podcast, but it will have had something to do with the arrival in the east from the Eurasian steppe of the confederacy of extremely terrifying mounted archery experts known as the Huns. Amianus Marcellinus discusses what he knows of the Huns late in his history. So the Huns are a distant threat, but definitely on the Roman military radar in the later 4th century, and indeed the Romans uh, sometimes hire Huns to fight Goths, as well as having a mostly Gothic army in places to fight the Huns. So say you are a Germanic tribesman, perhaps a Goth. If the Huns are behind you, and the rather unstable Roman empire is in front of you, and you've been supplying military personnel to the Romans for like 100 years at this point, you have lots of cultural points of contact with the Romans, maybe half of your family lives in Roman territory, and the Romans seem to have all this land up for grabs where your people could, in theory, settle down in peace and set up as citizen farmers, you're going to head for Roman territory. Most significant For our story today, are the various Germanic groups the Goths, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals. All of these groups were on the move in the fourth century looking for a place to call their own. They're speakers of a branch of the Germanic language family known as East Germanic, which has died out now. The last uh, Gothic speakers, I believe, died in the Crimean War. They were hanging out in Crimea although that might be uh, apocryphal history. I'm not sure. Anyway, we have uh, the Bible in Gothic, but that's about it. Listeners to our third storytime episode reading Eunapius of Sardis, Uh, we were mainly concentrating there on the story of Maximus of Ephesus and the fall of the Julianic project, but we had to throw in some political background. Those listeners will recall our brief CV of the Eastern Emperor Valens. Not terribly effective, but he managed okay until the Battle of Adrianople in the year 378, in which Goths, under their leader Fritigern, absolutely demolished a Roman army and killed Valens in battle. So that happened. Now for this episode, we're fast-forwarding just a few decades, and during that time, various Germanic tribes caught between the Huns on one side and the borders of the Roman Empire on the other are making lots of trouble in the Balkans, but also just along the Danube in general. In the year 410, the Visigoths had a leader called Alaric. He probably became a leader of a group of these Goths around the year 400, or maybe 395. Uh, he and his Visigoths actually fought for the Romans. They were allies of Rome's foederati, and had done some really serious fighting for the emperor. In this case, the Eastern Emperor Theodosius, who was trying to keep the Western Empire from collapsing. <laughs> so. They had shed a lot of blood for the Romans, and then Alaric, in a moment of calm, said, okay, what about that land you promised us? And he was dicked around by successive Roman administrations. The promises of land to settle in were broken, and in general, the high-handed we-don't-negotiate-with-barbarians attitude of the Romans proved to be the undoing of the Romans. Alaric said, negotiate with this, and he and his warriors sacked Rome. With impunity, they did it and they got away with it. Now, from the historical perspective of concrete political and material history, this in itself wasn't such a big deal. I mean, obviously it's a big deal, but on the other hand, Rome recovered and indeed, recovered enough to be sacked again in the year 455 by the Vandals under Genseric, and in 472 by various Germanic opportunists under Ricimer. Ricimer, in 546 by the Ostrogoths—you get the idea. But Rome, politically, was no longer the functional capital of the Western Empire anyway. Uh, that had been moved first to present-day Milan and then to Ravenna where it was in the year 410, for reasons of military defensibility. Rome was just not as uh, militarily well-chosen a site as somewhere like Ravenna. But anyway, for 80 years now, um, power had been moving eastwards to the new Rome, Constantinople. Uh, When Julian became sole emperor in the 360s, he didn't go to Rome. He went to Constantinople. Now, on the ideological level, on the level of cultural memory, this was a big deal. Rome had already been sacked once by Gauls, uh, Celtic warriors, in way back in the year 390 BCE. But then Rome was an obscure little militaristic city-state, and she quickly recovered. No big deal. She wasn't yet Rome, if you get what I'm saying. 800 years later, she's the all-conquering mistress of the world, the Eternal City, and she had a long legacy of repelling all comers, even the matchless General Hannibal, without ever being violated by the tread of an enemy foot. And now she's been looted and pillaged by rampaging Germanic barbarians. Now, was this the fall of Rome? Historically, no. Not even the fall of the physical city of Rome, which soldiered on despite the chaos and the falling living standards and all the rest. But ideologically, what happened in 410 was read by many as a crucial turning point. In a minute, we're going to have a look at two contemporary witnesses, one an esoteric Platonist chronicler, and one a Christian philosopher, and see what they made of this event. But before we get to that, and to the reverberations of this event in the annals of Western esotericism more generally, let's just stay with the history for a moment and talk about how it didn't happen. As we've emphasized before in this podcast, it doesn't make sense to discuss an empire falling or even collapsing if a major part of it, a rump as it were, is still functioning for more than a thousand years. That might seem obvious, but the fact that the Eastern Roman Empire has been rebranded as Byzantium for complex reasons to do with later reception and uh, the formation of academic fields like classics more than with history, this often leads many non-specialists and many specialists who really ought to know better to think that, okay, one sacking of Rome that's not the end of the world, but the empire did eventually collapse. So this whole decline and fall thing is basically right. Well, you can talk about decline because the Roman empire certainly loses a lot of territory in the fifth and sixth centuries. But what actually happened is that the Western part of the Roman empire, more or less the Latin speaking lands of Western Europe broke up and was carved into a number of smaller kingdoms along a kind of quasi-Roman model, in the case of the Spain or the Vandal Kingdom in North Africa, or just reverted to some kind of stateless anarchy, in the case of places like Britain. And incidentally, this time of power vacuum in British history, after the Roman uh, authority collapsed, will end up playing host to another great piece of cultural memory, the so-called Matter of Britain, which is to say the whole Arthurian legend cycle, which will of course reappear on the podcast because it's a very interesting aspect of Western esotericism. So in a lot of Western Europe, there really was a collapse. We'll get to collapse in a minute. In the East, however, roughly the lands where Greek was the main language, or Greek and forms of Aramaic, in the East, there just never was a collapse. That's really important to remember. So to take a modern example, we can talk about the British Empire falling apart, being dismantled, um, ending, something like that, but we can't really talk about it. The British Empire collapsing because Britain, kind of rump state of the British Empire, composed of England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, continues to exist and is a a functioning uh, state, you know. So, collapse is something different from that. In the East, there never was a collapse. The people called themselves Romans, uh, and Constantinople was the head both of the Orthodox Church and of the Empire of the Romans. In other words, a Christianized Roman Republica carried on in the East until the 15th century, and that's where much Western esotericism will be formed in ensuing centuries, in what's known as Byzantium, but isn't Byzantium, it's Rome. But let's leave the East to one side for a moment and discuss collapse, because part of the reason the fall of the Western Empire had such a profound cultural effect is that it wasn't just a changeover from one empire to another, or even... Uh, a changeover from one empire to a series of smaller successor states. It was a proper collapse, but it happened faster in some places and in more gradual stages in others. And that's a pretty heavy thing. And, and it leaves uh, scars on the collective consciousness of an area, I would say. We can actually define what we mean here by collapse. Uh, Joseph Tainter's book, the collapse of complex societies published in 1990 has been very controversial and very influential. And while I think his models leave a lot of unanswered questions, his description of what a collapse is, is very, very useful. I feel he says, quote, a society has collapsed when it displays a rapid significant loss of an established level of sociopolitical complexity, end of quote. So, okay. What does that mean exactly? He goes on to give concrete examples. Collapse is manifested in such things as, quote, a lower degree of stratification and social differentiation, less economic and occupational specialization of individuals, groups, and territories, less centralized control, that is, less regulation and integration of diverse economic and political groups by elites, less behavioral control and regimentation, less investment in the epiphenomena of complexity, those elements that define the concept of civilization, monumental architecture, artistic and literary achievements, and the like. In a modern context, we might want to add high-tech stuff to that as the trappings of civilization. So less investment in that, uh, less flow of information between individuals, between political and economic groups, and between a center and its periphery, less sharing, trading, and redistribution of resources, less overall coordination and organization of individuals and groups, a smaller territory integrated within a single political unit, end of quote. That's all stuff that we can um, sort of give places and names to and say, okay, all of that stuff happened in the Western Empire sooner or later leading into the medieval period. We might add urban depopulation, something Tainter discusses elsewhere as well. Cities, go from being complex, thriving hives of specialized activities, as they were in the Roman Empire, to, in the most extreme collapse scenarios, depopulated ghost towns. So in some places in the Western Empire, all of these things were true with a vengeance. Here in Britain, from about the beginning of the 5th century, things hit a really precipitous decline. It was fast. Hardly any coinage was minted, uh, probably a complete return to barter exchange. The end of mass-produced pottery by about the year 430. And no evidence that people even knew how to use a potter's wheel for hundreds of years after that. Um, so a huge loss of technological savvy. Mass population of cities, many of which actually became abandoned ghost towns for hundreds of years. Almost complete illiteracy or complete illiteracy, you know, to all intents and purposes, as far as we can tell. No central government whatsoever the roman troops basically abandoned their posts and presumably went back to the family farm if they were locals or if they were of foreign extraction to the farm they had married into with a local british lady all of this stuff happened it's been estimated that the standard of living in exeter the big city here in devon which was formerly a roman garrison town uh, didn't climb back up to roman levels until the 19th century That's what we mean by a rapid and precipitous and spectacular societal collapse. Things were slower elsewhere, however. And the Germanic successor states in Western Europe and North Africa, they collapsed to a higher level, if that makes sense. But everything from their artistic creations to what we can see of their way of life took a major hit over many centuries. So this is a series of um, kind of juddering declines in general Economic activity, complexity, societal uh, function, this sort of thing. And this brings us to the idea of the Dark Ages, a term which has fallen out of popularity among historians for good reasons, but which is kind of a thing, nevertheless. When a society gives us no documents whatsoever for several centuries, It's pretty dark from our perspective uh, as to what we can say about it, even if it wasn't dark to the people living there. And maybe it wasn't dark to the people living, though it's hard to imagine even the most Roman-hating Britain not pining for at least some of the things that the Romans did for us, right? Uh, It stands to reason a lot of people missed sewers and paved roads and freedom from marauding bands of opportunist pirates, none of which they would have for many hundreds of years. So why are we discussing the Dark Ages and societal collapse at such length? I just want to emphasize the concrete historical side of this stuff, because in my experience, it's never totally separate in the cultural memory from the meaning stuff. You can see this today, to take just one example, in the deep conviction among a significant section of of modern occultists that the West, and this or that construal of the term, it's always a bit vague when people say the West, as we know here on the podcast, the West is definitely undergoing a decline. Spiritual, philosophical, moral, uh, whatever. And there's often a lot of overlap between forms of this opinion among occultists and concerns about more pragmatic collapse scenarios, which are often seen as being just over the horizon. The whole variety of possible scientific apocalyptic scenarios, nuclear annihilation, the escape of a potent biological agent from some laboratory, the looming menace of climate change or any number of conspiracy ideas about how they are going to uh, depopulate the earth using vaccines or whatever, you know. None of these ideas have much to do with western esotericism on the face of it. But any student of modern occultism will notice a myriad of ways in which these concrete material circumstances will be woven into decline and fall narratives with an esoteric spiritual meaning. And anyone who's been following the online cult uh, QAnon, for example, and its many kind of uh, relative phenomena, will see exactly what I mean. Everything is a kind of sacred history playing out of a war between light and darkness, and it all has to do with things like poison vaccines and uh, Jewish space lasers and stuff like this. So that's worth pointing out now as the theme of material decline— pointing to a deeper spiritual meaning, will return again and again in the history of Western esotericism. And we'll come back to that later in this episode. There's another suite of macro themes, uh, themes of societal rebirth or restoration, or the return of the golden age, or the alchemical perfection of matter, or the redemption of the whole world through divine grace. These themes in the West very often play out in a discursive field in which the notional fall of Rome is a major landmark. So think about the way we divide history up, right? Classical period, the latter part of which is the Greco-Roman period, basically. Middle Ages and Renaissance, which is French for rebirth. This is an artificial Western Eurocentric and just misleading way of dividing up history. But boy, does it have staying power as a myth for thinking with. So I think that is in part because the fall of Rome was a kind of mythic atom bomb in the Western psyche. It's still echoing. So that brings us to what it means. Well, as will be apparent, it means so much that there's no way we're going to be able to discuss what it means in a single episode of this podcast. What we can do, however, is begin the story. So what are some of the crucial effects Of the fall of Rome on Western esotericism and Western thought more generally. We can start by looking at some of the effects it had in late antiquity and drawing a few larger lessons from these. And now here we're talking about meaning now. We're not talking anymore about facts and figures so much, but what people made of what happened. Our first case study comes from the lives of philosophers and sophists of Eunapius of Sardis. Eunapius is writing sometime in the earlyish 5th century mostly about events of the 3rd to 4th centuries. Those gentle listeners who checked out our series of storytime episodes delving into Eunapius' text will be well aware of this late antique historian. Those who didn't hear those episodes will recall Eunapius as one of our chief sources for the biography of the divine Iamblichus, of Julian the Restorer of Sosipatra of Pergamon, and as a generally pro-Platonist, traditionalist writer looking askance at all this newfangled Christianity business. In fact, Eunapius sees Christianity as a corrupt, unlawful, filthy, and barbarous creed, and his work is full of prophecies by various theurgic Platonist sages of coming decline and calamity for the civilized world, sometimes laid directly at the door of the Christians, as we shall see in a moment. This genre of polytheist prophecy of doom may well remind listeners of the foretold destruction of Egypt, at the hands of foreign rulers found in the Hermetic text known as Asclepius. And this is indeed the basic genre we're talking about. The fact that there were many prophecies like this around in antiquity opens us a window on another dimension of how the sack of the city of Rome must have struck the traditionally religious it was so shocking, not because it was unexpected, but because it was fulfilling prophecy. It had been predicted and was now actually coming about before their eyes, right? Now, one particular prophetic passage in Eunapius interests us here, as it alludes directly to the sacking of 410. It takes place during the life of the soon-to-be emperor Julian. Julian has left Pergamum, where he was studying Platonist philosophy with Idesius, the successor of Iamblichus, and hanging around with Maximus of Ephesus, who would later become the eminence Clis behind his uh, throne. But he's left those people and gone to Eleusis to get initiated. And the hierophant there, the uh, mystagogue, Eunapius won't tell us his name, as this is forbidden by initiatory custom. This hierophant has oracular powers. Of course he does, as, as we just mentioned. Eunapius attributes knowledge of future events and or clairvoyant second sight to all his great holy men and women, from Iamblichus through Sosipatra, Sosipatra's son Antoninus, and now to this unnamed Eleusinian mystagogue. This mystagogue prophesies that a non-Athenian would succeed to the post of Eleusinian Hierophant. So in other words, when he dies, the next guy who takes this post is going to be non-Athenian. This would be breaking the tradition of probably more than a millennium, during which the Hierophants of Eleusis had been Athenian citizens and descendants of the legendary Eumolpid family. Although the mysteries were, as we know, open to all Greek speakers, free of ritual pollution, even to slaves, men and women, the lineage of the Hierophants had been kind of closely controlled for a very long time. And Eunapius sees this break with tradition actually Eunapius' Hierophant, sees this break with tradition as a dire sign of the times. Not only would a non-Athenian succeed to the post of Hierophant, but the temples of the gods would be destroyed everywhere. So that's the prophecy. And indeed, in the event, it was just as this last true Hierophant had predicted. He died, and Eunapius obviously lived longer than he did, so he was able to tell us what happened afterwards. A citizen of the city of Thespiae became the new Hierophant. But not only is this guy not Athenian, he's already a Mithraic initiate, and this was a disaster. Eunapius doesn't tell us why it's a disaster. Evidently it's meant to be self-explanatory, but presumably there's a rule that the Eleusinian hierophant can't be initiated into other mysteries, something like that. And so it's blatantly not cool for this guy to be the, the new hierophant at Eleusis. But he was, and as soon as he took office, a bunch of disasters ensued. Now here, it's no longer clear whether Eunapius is continuing to recount prophecies made by the Hierophant, or if he's just sort of riffing on them to go on a rant about how bad things have become. But he now evokes a general anger of the gods theme, and mentions one event in particular, the sacking of Rome by Alaric the Goth in the year 410. Blaming it, not indeed on this problem with the Eleusinian succession, but blaming it specifically on the impieties of certain black-clad individuals, that is to say, of Christian monks. Or another way of looking at it is he's blaming it not on the Goths, but on the Goths, if you see what I mean. Anyway, now Eunapius is fast-forwarding here a bit to the year 410. Uh, Julian's initiation will have been sometime before the year 360-ish, and Eunapius may have heard this prophecy in some context totally separate from Julian because he mentions he's also been initiated by the same Hierophant, so he met him later. But anyway, there's some fast forwarding going on. Note how Eunapius elides a break with a very ancient sacred tradition, the Eleusinian succession, the proper management of perhaps Greece's most holy and storied initiatory institution. He's going to align that with the sacking of Rome. And he introduces monks specifically as the culprits. So bad dealings with the gods leads to disaster in two different cases, right? We can take this story in Eunapius as a case study for a feeling that we know was very widespread among traditionally religious intellectuals of late antiquity. Greece and Rome had long fused into a single cultural whole, a Greco-Roman culture, and I mean explicitly in the works of Julian, as we saw, and this culture represented how things were supposed to be. It maintained proper relationships with the gods, and this culture was now under threat. A threat symbolized pretty obviously and urgently by the literal sack of Rome at the hands of Germanic marauders, the sort of people that in the old days of the Roman Empire were habitually exterminated whenever they raised a fuss on the border, but who now ran roughshod over everything. But the rampaging Goths were an effect, not a cause, for Eunapius. The cause was the anger of the gods at the impious customs of the Christians. So you see how the the very material circumstances get wound up inextricably with giant narratives of meaning, right? Now, the reign of Julian will mostly be for many Christian centuries, which follow an almost forgotten blip in the sacred history of Christianity's inevitable rise. However, there were those in Eastern Rome who in the heart of the medieval period remembered Julian. Julian and these late Platonists he surrounded himself with, and his vision of a sacred and Hellenic Roman Empire, and perhaps valorized other aspects of the story told by Eunapius. There are some hints in our evidence of at least an interest in the polytheist past in East Roman texts, which doesn't seem to fit comfortably within the culture of orthodoxy that obtained in East Rome. And we should be covering that evidence in the podcast. But in terms of the significance of the fall of Rome for Western esotericism, of a pro polytheist, anti Christian tenor, we need to wait until the modern period. Um, When we study figures like the Italian hyper fascist, occultist Julius Evola, the significance of pagan Rome and her fall will come to the forefront in a big way. But back in late antiquity, the sack of Rome represented, for the traditional cause, an appalling sign of the times. But of course, Christians were also deeply appalled by this event and by the subsequent decline into chaos and butchery that marked the 5th and 6th centuries in the Western Empire. Contemporary Christian writers make an effort of responding to what must have been a really a lot of people murmuring at the time, and not just polytheists, but Christians, that the gods actually must really be pissed off with Rome and maybe the polytheists are right, and that the, the problem was the impiety of Christianity. Maybe maybe this was a bad idea, folks. No, respond the diehard Christians. This means we should double down on Christianity. And here, our case study is another contemporary text, on the City of God by Augustine of Hippo. So Augustine, Saint Augustine, as he's known to some, is probably the most important anti-esotericist. Uh, for the history of Western esotericism. And hopefully the gentle listener will see what I mean by this in a few episodes' time, because as part of our series of episodes looking at important Latin language authors of our period, the 4th century and early 5th, including some discussions on what was going on with esoteric Platonism in the Western Empire, we shall devote an episode to the great African church father Augustine, who is explicitly an anti-esotericist. Although, of course, he has aspects of the esoteric within his thought, like a certain apophaticism and some uh, kind of watered-down arithmological speculation and all that kind of stuff. Nevertheless, he explicitly attacks esotericism as a position, right? And weirdly, Augustine is the single most influential thinker for the history, not of Christianity as a whole, but of Protestant Christianity, In one of those really weird outcomes of history. But for now, we're just going to discuss Augustine's work on the city of God against the pagans, as it's traditionally known. I should just say, by way of brief introduction, Augustine is the Latin-speaking bishop of the city of Hippo in far western North Africa. This book on the city of God is a massive rambling work in 22 books written to refute polytheism to prove Augustine's version of Christianity is correct, and generally to make sense of the sacking of Rome within that context. We know, in fact, from Augustine's letters that he wrote the work because its addressee, one uh, Marcellinus, had specifically asked him to write something defending against the charge that Christianity was undermining the empire, as evidenced especially by the sacking of Rome. So this is a response to the sacking of Rome from Augustine's Christian point of view. Augustine takes the sacking as his starting point in book one. Many Roman citizens had taken refuge in Christian churches, it turns out, as the Goths were rampaging around, sacking the place. And Alaric's troops had left those people alone. This is remarked on by other Christian authors as well. Now, Augustine takes this as a very clear sign that Christianity, far from being bad for the world, is blatantly a good thing, although his reasoning is tortuous in the extreme. First of all, he falsely claims that this kind of uh, mercy shown by someone sacking a city has never happened in the case of what he calls pagan shrines. Uh, Perhaps he's unfamiliar with the famous example of Alexander of Macedon sparing those who took refuge in the temples of the gods when he Sacked the city of Tyre. And there are many other such examples um, well known to classically literate people of Augustine's era. And one such example is recounted in Virgil's Aeneid, which Augustine does know pretty well, so we might think he's just glossing over the facts here or conveniently forgetting them. But anyway, he makes this false claim that this has only ever happened in the case of Christianity, and he counters with the example of Alaric sparing those taking refuge in Christian temples at Rome, many of them Christian, but even the pagans among them being spared. And he argues that this can only be because the power of Christ's name protected these people. So Augustine's claim is actually a magical claim, funnily enough, or at least a efficacious, miraculous name type claim. The name of Jesus protected those people in the churches, even the pagans. So this is names of power territory. When Jesus's name doesn't protect people, uh, as in the case, for example, of all the Christian martyrs, well, that's because the sufferings of this world are nothing to a Christian. So those martyrs being killed is actually a good thing for them. But when Jesus's name does protect people, that's also a sign that Christianity is Right. So Augustine can and will have it always at the same time. This is an unpromising beginning to Augustine's arguments, and the quality doesn't go up much as the book winds its interminable way along. I find this book a less-than-stellar piece of apologetics, and although I haven't read the whole book, surely no one has, ever. It still left me thinking that if what this guy has to offer represents the best of early 5th century Christianity, then the gods probably were justifiably angry with the Christians. And uh, Alaric, by sparing them, was in fact uh, aiding the destruction of the empire. But seriously, what Augustine goes on to do will have huge implications for Western esotericism and for sort of macro narratives in the West. Because he will definitively draw the story of Rome into the story of Christian Apocalypticism and millenarianism. So we know that Christians were and have always been wondering when exactly the promised end of the current world would take place. Uh, But they're all agreed that it's coming, right? As we noted in our episode sixty-four on the origins of Christianity, Christianity developed out of a kind of what's you know loosely called apocalyptic flavor of late Second Temple Judaism, and the synoptic gospel writers record jesus as predicting the end times way back in the first century ce so they should have already happened obviously that didn't pan out and christianity adapted now with rome's fall a new piece of vocabulary is added to the tropes already present to do with the coming end times um at the time one assumes that a lot of christians were saying see rome fell how can you doubt that the end is really nigh this time, right? But later, as this too failed to pan out, there arose another trope with serious staying power. And this is basically Augustine's overarching point in On the City of God, if he has one. So Augustine does something here which has a really, really lasting effect, which is to say, see all things in this world perish, only God's kingdom is eternal. Rome Thus became the type of fallen mortal grandeur and hubris to be contrasted with the true grandeur of Christianity's message and the kingdom of heaven. In a way, Augustine was quite in tune with the inner logic of Christianity here, whereby something obviously bad in the normal sense, like "Your Messiah being crucified OK, so much for the revolution, guys, let's uh, go back to the drawing board can be turned into a weird kind of victory our Messiah actually defeated all the evil bad guys precisely by being crucified. Yay, we win. So with Rome, it seems like this is an absolute disaster and civilization is collapsing, and it was, but that's actually a victory for the true civilization, the city of God, which you can attain to precisely by spurning all the trappings of this mortal, perishable world. And what better to symbolize those trappings than the greatest icon of political, economic, military, and cultural splendor that the West had ever seen, the Eternal City of Rome. One can almost hear Augustine saying, "Not so eternal now, are you?" Now, this very complex set of tropes, which doesn't entirely come from Augustine's On the City of God, I should emphasize, but I think his his piece is a very important factor in forming this trope of Rome as symbolizing the world and its inevitable fall, of course, will coexist in a very uneasy uh, fashion with the continued primacy of Rome, particularly in the Catholic Church. Because in a sense, Rome as the seat of empire never fails. It's simply that imperium in the worldly sense is completely lost, but imperium in the spiritual sense remains in Rome to this day in the form of the papacy. So that, gentle listener, has been a few musings on the sacking of Rome in late antiquity and on some of the thematic motifs which arose from that sacking and from the decline and fall of the Western Empire more generally. The city of Rome is the central character in the West's great myth of inevitable decline, inevitable failure, of the ineluctability of decay and entropy this myth, I think, is always with us Westerners to the point where, as I proposed at the beginning of this episode, we just tend to take it for granted, right? Empires rise and empires fall. And this myth, this narrative is always engaging in a creative or destructive interference pattern with the much more modern, but also very potent myth about progress, about how things can only get better. On this rather somber note, we bid farewell to our friend Eunapius of Sardis, who's been a choice companion for many episodes now. But don't worry, esoteric Platonism is far from done. And indeed, we'll be both continuing in its full polytheist glory for some centuries, and we'll be conquering the Christian enemy from within. As for Augustine and his form of Christian quasi-Platonism, we shall be coming back to that too. And in the next series of episodes, we shall be discussing more complex interactions between polytheist Platonism and Christianity at the highest levels in late antiquity. So join us next time for a discussion of Hypatia of Alexandria. And until then, stay esoteric.